Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Now, today, my guest is Justin Snidegar. Justin is lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at the University of St. Andrews. Justin has a new book that's titled Contrastive Reasons. It's published by Oxford University Press. Now, in this book, Justin develops and defends the thesis that normative reasons are fundamentally contrastive in structure. This is to say that a reason to perform some act is always a reason to perform that act rather than some other act. In one way, contrastivism sounds like a natural fit with everyday understandings of deliberation or practical reason. In those cases, we're concerned to decide what to do and those decisions are carried out among options and ways of conceiving what other thi- what things we might do. But note that contrastivism about reasons has to say more than that. The contrastivist says that there is no reason simpliciter to perform a given act. A reason to perform some act A is always a reason to A, given some background of alternatives to A. That still might sound intuitive, but a lot of work needs to be done in order to flesh out the details, and there are lots of puzzles uh, along the way. So as usual, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Contrastive Reasons is a, is a concise book that's got a lot of philosophy packed in. Um, but why don't we begin where we normally do, which is by greeting our guest. Hello, Justin. Hey, Bob. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm doing great. Watching it rain in St. Andrews. <laughs> well, it's very sunny and hot in Nashville, if that's any consolation. <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, thanks for joining us today on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Why don't you start us off, as we usually start these conversations off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm a lecturer in philosophy at, in St. Andrews, which is, uh, for those of you that don't know, a small town on the east coast of Scotland. Uh, and I live in an even smaller town, more like a tiny fishing village uh, outside of St. Andrews. Um, so I, I grew up in a, another small town uh, called Lewisburg, which is in southeastern West Virginia, which is, you know, a really tiny place in the middle of nowhere, but actually a really charming town. And uh, something I'm actually sort of unreasonably proud of is that the town was actually named the coolest small town in America by a travel magazine uh, in, in 2011. Did they give reasons for that? What, what, what makes it cool? Uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, a kind of small mountain town that's kind of packed with art galleries and, you know, Carnegie Hall, a, a sort of genuine Carnegie Hall uh, and, and good food. Uh, and it's, so those are some of the things that make it cool, at least. Yeah. Cool. Now, I mean, the reason it actually won the competition, I think, 
was that it, maybe this is something that makes the town cool. It has a lot of residents who are willing to log in to the Budget Travel Magazine website every couple of hours and vote uh, for Lewisburg as coolest small town. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, I, I grew up there. I spent you know basically my whole life until I was 18 there, and then went to college at West Virginia University in Morgantown. Uh, when I went to college, I was a math major. And so I remember on the drive up to orientation before my freshman year, sort of flipping through the course catalog, deciding what other kinds of elective classes to take. And I came across the philosophy section and I wasn't, you know, I was kind of a, a smart kid, I guess, but never really a very scholarly one. So I had no idea what philosophy was. Uh, the description sounded sort of interesting. So I decided to take an intro class and then just kind of kept going from there. So actually, when I was in college, I, you know, the, the, I, the thought of being a college professor never, never occurred to me much when I was growing up. I guess I knew there were college professors, but no one I knew was one. Uh, but when I got to college, I saw the professors and I thought, you know, these guys have a pretty good job. I might like to do that. So I decided to do that. And then only a couple years later decided maybe I would do that in philosophy. So Anyway, after after college at WVU, uh, I guess I, I should say I should say that um, I think a big reason I got into philosophy was that the the department at WVU while I was there was just really vibrant, you know, student focused kind of place. Um, so that really drew me in, um, and then I liked the classes, so I stuck with it. So after that, I went to graduate school at the University of Southern California. Um, and I went there intending to work in metaphysics and philosophy of language. But my first year, I took a seminar on deontic modality um, with Mark Schroeder, who would eventually become my supervisor. So deontic modals are words like ought, must, and may. And that got me sort of leaning in the direction of thinking about normativity. Um, and so it just kind of kept going from there and had some ideas that, that contrastive theories of these kinds of words might be... Uh, you know, useful or uh, be able to say some interesting things. And so I started working on that and eventually transitioned from there into thinking about normative reasons. And that's uh, where the book came from. Well, wonderful. Why don't we, that's, it's, it's always good to hear, uh, uh, you know, a, a story where a small philosophy department is, 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 is um, you know, is, is behind uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the motivations for somebody uh, getting, uh, you know, pursuing a profession in philosophy. Um, um, why don't we, though, pick up on, 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 on uh, where, uh, where you, you were just leaving off. Um, it might be helpful, I think, uh, in, 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 in uh, talking about the book um, to begin with uh, a, a question sort of about the broader um, environment within which uh, the, the, the book uh, is, is operating. Um, maybe you can uh, tell us uh, in, in a very general way um, uh, why one might think uh, that normative theorizing um, in the very general sense um, should begin or that, uh, that it should start with um, uh, theorizing about reasons rather than theorizing about other sort of likely objects <laughs> you know, like properties yeah. or states of affairs or uh, character traits or properties of persons or dispositions. Why start with reasons? 
Yeah, so I think that's that's a good question. So uh, if I can just give a, a little bit of a caricature, I guess, of sure. uh, of moral philosophy, sort of before the, the 20th century. Um, and here I'm out of my depth, so hopefully I don't offend anyone. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of uh, moral philosophy um, w- was kind of focused on, on rules. So, I mean, we have, you know, even going way back, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, um, these are just a bunch of rules that uh, you can't violate or else, you know, you're sinning and and if not for the grace of God, you would go to hell. Uh, then we have, you know, Kant giving this categorical imperative, this kind of one true rule of morality. Um, we have Mill and the utilitarians giving the one true principle of morality. Anytime you, you violate the principle of utility, you're doing something morally wrong. And so there's this kind of history of thinking about ethics in terms of these exceptionless rules or principles. Uh, but, you know, in fact, when you think about sort of ordinary moral life, that seems not really to, uh, to quite capture it. And so I think this is one of the, the insights of uh, W.D. Ross from his book, The Right and the Good, from 1930. He recognized that uh, moral life involves basically a lot of trade-offs. Um, actions that are good in some ways or bad in other ways. So an action might be, you know, produce a lot of happiness, but it might require breaking a promise. Um, and so if we just think of morality as involving uh, these exceptionless rules, um, suppose we have one rule that says, well, you have to do what produces happiness, but then we have another rule that says you can't break a promise. Well, then in situations like this, we're just going to be stuck. We're going to have to break one of the rules no matter what we do. Um, and so what Ross, this kind of idea that Ross uh, sort of introduced into, into moral theory was that uh, some considerations aren't, aren't these exceptionless rules, but are instead uh, kind of pro tanto. They, they contribute some weight for or against uh, the option in question. And then what we have to do to decide, you know, what we have most, what, what we ought to do, all things considered, is kind of weigh those things against each other. Um, and so I think that that. You know, Ross didn't really talk about reasons. He talked about prima facie duties. But I think most thinking about reasons can, can be traced back to, uh, to Ross in that way. And so these reasons that, you know, my book's about and that many, many other books are about, um, or maybe the best way to think about them is as trying to capture this idea that, that normative thinking, moral thinking involves uh, making trade-offs. Right. And so um, fill in just one more uh, uh, detail of this. Um, uh, Is there some motivation uh, for starting with thinking about reasons that also derives from um, uh, either dissatisfaction or wariness of the very idea of properties <laughs> or uh, uh, of, you know, that, that maybe uh, um, some of the other sort of likely candidates for where to start normative theory um, can look a little suspicious, like entities that are associated with the properties of being good and bad. Is there some, um, is there some advantage uh, in starting with reasons that you don't have to begin with sort of more um, overtly metaphysical and ontological kinds of questions? Um, you know, I mean, in, in one way, I guess I could see how you could be motivated to think of, you know, to start by thinking about reasons in in that way. Um, because the things that are, that are reasons are just, you know, um, 
ordinary kinds of just facts about the world. So the fact that um, the person is in pain is going to be a reason to uh, do what you can t- to help the person. Um, and so reasons themselves are very kind of down-to-earth entities in a way. Um, now, I'm not sure how sort of strong that, that motivation is going to be once you start thinking about, um, well, yeah, the, the, the reason itself in a way is just an ordinary fact about the world. But of course, the fact that it's a reason um, is not clearly any less uh, worrying in, in the ways you might have been hinting at than the fact that something is good. Right. Can you state um, uh, in some very broad terms and just w- what a contrastivist view about reasons is? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you did a, a pretty reasonable job in general terms in your introduction. Uh, a contrastivist view about reasons is, yeah, well, I should say something, you know, I mean, maybe it, it'll be clear by this point. But it's the idea that uh, if you if you introduce reasons into your normative theory um, in order to capture this idea that uh, for, for any given option, there's some things to be said for it and some things to be said against it. Um, that pretty naturally leads into this ubiquitous claim that what a reason is is a consideration that counts in favor of a certain option. Um, or it's, you know, a consideration that you would sort of put in the pro column when you're trying to, to decide what to do. Um, and so a, con- a contrastive view of reason said, yeah, says, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's right. But uh, a reason is only going to count in favor of something, only going to be a reason for something um, relative to a certain contrast, relative to a certain uh, alternative option. So a reason for for uh, doing A is only going to be a reason, really kind of fundamentally a reason for doing A rather than some other alternative B, where that doesn't imply that that same consideration is going to be a reason for doing A rather than some other alternative uh, C, for example. And so, well, that, that, that's at a general level. Yeah, what, what contrastivism about, about reasons says. Right, so then there's, there's no... Um uh, the contrastivist thinks that, 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 that there, there's no simple you know, reason to phi. It's always, if there's a reason to phi, that's just shorthand for phiing wins in some comparison against other uh, uh, options. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, and so, I mean, you know, that, that's interesting that you put it that way because, you know, one sort of natural reaction, you, you said that contrastivism about reason is sort of stated at a general level does have a certain kind of intuitiveness to it. Right. Um, but, you know, when you start saying, well, all reasons are really reasons to do one thing rather than another, you might sort of think about um, our ordinary talk about reasons and notice that, uh, you know, sometimes we do talk like that. We talk about a reason to go to this restaurant rather than that one. But maybe more often, or at least very often, we just talk about a reason to go to this restaurant and we don't mention any alternatives. Um, and so the contrastivist has, has some work to do to, uh, to sort of square their view with that observation. Um, and so, you know, I think there are various ways that you can, you can try and do that. The way I, I pursue in the book is a, a, a kind of contextualist view. It says, look, if we don't say what the what the contrast is, then we're just going to have to recover it from, from the context, basically. And so, you know, if we're looking at three restaurants in front of us and trying to decide where to go, um, when I say, well, the, you know, this one's the cheapest, that's the reason to go there, then it, in that kind of case, that is pretty clear what the alternatives are. Um, 
And it's not always going to be totally obvious what the alternatives are, but, you know, hopefully we can sort of generalize from that from that simple case. Right. Right. So let's pick up there, because um, there one of the really refreshing things about the book, Justin, is um, that you're uh, you're you're doing honest philosophical labor throughout (laughs) in the following sense that I I think is a little too rare uh, in philosophy. Um, You're. you're 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 determined to make your to, to to you're determined to make your task harder than <laughs> uh than than one might uh one might uh think or, or I should say maybe um you're determined to, to maximize the burden the philosophical <laughs> burden that you put on yourself uh which uh again I, I really commend you for I I, I think that's uh, wonderful and w- one of the ways um or at least where the book begins and one of the ways in which you do sort of uh, uh uh add to your philosophical burden is you you start uh, in 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 a way that very few books begin which is you start with a um a very neat and tidy and highly intuitive uh, um, conceptual route into contrastivism. And you say, yeah, that's really intuitive and that's neat and and wonderful, but not enough, not sufficient. <laughs> um, you could have gotten on the horse and ridden out into the sunset, but you say, well, don't don't be tricked. It's it can't be this easy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of that sort of th- that intuitive uh, uh, way into contrastivism that um, that you begin with? It's 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 a it's a it's a kind of thought that that uh, one finds in uh, Walter Sinnott Armstrong's uh, uh, work on this sort of uh, topic. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that intuitive route and then say something about why you think it's got to be more complicated than what uh, how things might appear? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a good place to start. So. I mean, for people that are, uh, you know, maybe unfamiliar with contrastivism about reasons might be familiar with contrastivism uh, as a, you know, about other things as a more general kind of uh, philosophical program. Um, so Jonathan Schaffer and some other people have been defending contrastivism about knowledge, this idea that to know something is always really to know that P rather than Q. Um, uh in the, in the philosophy of science, uh, people have thought for a long time that explanation is fundamentally contrastive. Um, so the low temperature might explain why it's snowing rather than raining, but of course the low temperature isn't going to explain why it's snowing rather than not precipitating at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are contrastive theories of all kinds of different things, um, including, you know, I just mentioned knowledge and explanation. Uh, there are contrastive theories of obligation contrastive theories of epistemic justification um, and, and, and things like that. And so, you know, and th- those views have, you know, pretty compelling arguments uh, in favor of them. Um, and so what Senator Armstrong notices is, you know, let's look at for at least many of these concepts that contrastive contrastivism has seemed um, kind of promising for. Um, all of these concepts have some intimate connection to reasons. So contrastivism about obligation, the idea that when you ought to do something, uh, really fundamentally, you ought to do that thing rather than some other thing. Um, uh, obligation is, of course, it seems at least to go back to, to the, the sort of Rossian idea I started with. Um, what you're obligated to do is going to be determined by your reasons. Um, you ought to do what you have most reason to do. Um, 
for epistemic justification, uh, a lot of people think that to be justified in believing something, you have to have you know sufficient reason to believe it. And even in the explanatory case, you know, if we move out of the the kind of normative realm, um, when we give an explanation for something, uh, another way to put that is to say we're giving a reason why uh, that thing holds or that event occurred or, or whatever. And so all of these things that contrastivism has seen plausible for seem to be intimately connected to reasons in some way. And so Senator Armstrong notices this and he says, well, look, we can kind of draw a little inference to the best explanation here. Maybe the reason all of these uh, concepts are contrastive is because reasons are contrastive. And then the contrastivism about reasons kind of percolates up to, to these other concepts and, and so makes them contrastive. Um, and so, you know, I think that is a, a really kind of neat, intuitive thought, as you said. Um, but as you say, uh, that would make the book too short. Mean, it's a short book, but that would be a really short uh, book. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I think, I mean, one big reason actually that, um, you know, I don't really want to rely on that is it does, <laughs> you know, to make that inference to the best explanation work, we have to the thing we're trying to explain has to be true. So we have to already accept contrastivism about knowledge, about justification, about obligation, about explanation. Um, and so that's, you know, it's to hold contrastivism about reasons kind of hostage to the fortunes of those other views, um, which I don't necessarily want to do. Um, one big reason I don't want to do that is because I think that I actually have more compelling arguments for contrastivism about reasons than I've seen for contrastivism about, about some of those other concepts. Um, so that, that's sort of one big reason why I don't want to rely on that. Um, but there's some more kind of detailed, detailed reasons too. Um, and so in the, in the book, in the first chapter, I sort of see whether we can give uh, kind of mixed views in a way. So views that accept contrastivism about reasons without accepting contrastivism about, say, obligation or justification, or vice versa, whether we can give contrastive views of obligation and justification that um, that don't rely on any kind of contrastive view of, of reasons. And so, you know, showing that contrastivism about reasons is neither necessary nor sufficient for these for contrastivism about some of these other concepts isn't enough to undermine an inference to the best explanation, of course. But, uh, you know, as I say in the book, I think in the, in the course of trying to give these sort of mixed views, I think some of the mixed views are, are pretty plausible. Um, and it's just not clear to me how we could um, argue in favor of the fully contrasted view that we would need to get the inference to the best explanation going without just giving some more direct evidence for contrastivism about reasons, which is then what I try and do uh, in the rest of the book. And right. so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so you're right. And, it, you know, um, there is something undeniably compelling about the, the the sort of form of the argument that one gets in Sinard Armstrong. It's like, well, what else could, why else would we find contrastivism in these other places except for mm -hmm. if it weren't the case that the reasons are Yeah, are it, seems to be, it seems to be the main thing the other concepts have in common, basically, is their connection to, to reasons, of course. Right, right so. but I, I, I'm with you in thinking like, okay, that's a, that's a, that can't be the whole story. I mean, <laughs> you know, that it would be nice if, if you know, you could just sort of you know, wash your hands and say, okay, well now the philosophy's done. We, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks like that's a that's a good start, but um, 
you know, uh, it it does seem a little uh, a little too quick. Um, so um, let's then turn, uh, if we may, uh, to, uh, to 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 your own sort of uh, positive proposal. That is, you know, what are the independent? Uh, what's the independent account uh, for or for being a contrastivist about reasons? Um, and uh, there you begin um, uh, with uh, a, a distinction between shallow and uh, deep contrastivism about reasons. And you think that um, uh, the Sinard Armstrong line gives us, uh, and, and, and related considerations gives us, um, uh, you know, gets us into the, the, the shallow end of the contrastivist pool, as we would put it. Um, but you yep. think that the shallow end of the contrastivist pool is not uh, not sufficient for for capturing everything that contrastivism uh, needs to say. So, Kia, tell us a little bit about the distinction between the shallow and the deep, and then uh, 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 get into uh, you know why you think that uh, we, we need to go deep. Good. So maybe the maybe a good place to start is to say, you know, how we even get into the sort of shallow end of the pool. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I sort of, I really like Walter Sinnott Armstrong. He's been, you know, a great philosophical friend to me, uh, but I sort of beat up on him for a couple of chapters at the beginning of the book. So I feel kind of bad about that. I don't oh, think but he I, would, he would enjoy it. I think he doesn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, the, the, the second the second chapter after I've said, well, this sort of inference to the best explanation style argument isn't going to be enough. What we want is some direct evidence um, for contrastivism about reasons. Um, you know, I started with an actually another kind of argument from from Senate Armstrong. Um, and it, it's based on on uh, reason claims or reason ascriptions. Um, so. You know, I mentioned before that a lot of the time when we are ascribing a normative reason, we do, you know, use it a kind of explicitly contrastive uh, um, way of talking. We'll say, you know, so the example I borrow from from Senate Armstrong is uh, the fact that it's your birthday is a reason for me to bake you a chocolate cake rather than bake you a meatloaf. Um, but at the same time, the fact that it's your birthday is not a reason for me to bake you a chocolate cake rather than bake you, say, a lemon cake. Okay, so, you know, that, I mean, that sort of looks pretty compelling that those, both of those, you know, claims seem true. Um, and so whether the fact that it's your birthday is a reason to bake you a chocolate cake or not seems to depend on the alternatives. If, if the alternative is baking you a meatloaf, then it is a reason to bake you a chocolate cake. If the alternative is baking you a lemon cake, then it's not a reason to bake you a chocolate cake. And so that looks like a nice, quick argument for contrastivism about reasons. So I think that actually that sort of case that, that Senate Armstrong gives is going to be too simple. Um, and maybe it's not really worth going through all the details of trying to sort of build up that argument. But the main point is, I think when we look at other kinds of cases, I do think there's good reason to think that um, at least our talk about reasons is, is contrastive, um, is going to be um, all reason descriptions are going to be at least implicitly um, of the form R is a reason to do A rather than B. Okay, so that's that's uh, a, a contrastive view about reason descriptions, about the word reason, if you like. Right. And that's and so you know that would lead fairly naturally into contrastivism about reasons, the claim that you know the reason relation itself uh, is is a contrastive one. Um, but, you know, contrastivism about reasons, 
uh, as intuitive as it might sort of sound initially, is a fairly radical thesis. Um, it, it is a little bit strained, I guess, to say it goes against uh, you know almost all the other theorizing about reasons because most people just haven't the, the view hasn't really been visible, I think. Um, but people don't tend to state their views about reasons in contrastive terms, at least. Um, and relatedly, they don't tend to state their um, sort of reasons-based analyses of other normative concepts, um, like obligation or justification, uh, in contrastive terms. And so, you know, one consequence, if we were to adopt contrastivism about reasons, is that we might have to sort of redo all of that. Um, we'd have to reject a lot of what, 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 what other philosophers have said about this, redo these analyses in more complicated, contrastive terms. And so maybe we don't, we don't want to be too quick in jumping to uh, um, a kind of deeper contrastivism about, about reasons themselves. And so since the arguments I give in the second chapter are really just about, you know, our talk about reasons, um, that suggests a natural sort of strategy. Um, and this is what I call shallow contrastivism. Maybe we can give, you know, a contrastive account of our talk about reasons, if you, if you like, a sort of contrastive semantics for the word reason um, without kind of going, going into this sort of deep contrastivism full force. Um, and so in the, in the third chapter of the book, I, I sort of sketch out that kind of picture. Um, the idea is to just just basically adopt the, the, the contrastive semantics for reason for the word reason that I give in the second chapter, um, where reason descriptions really are all at least implicitly of the form R is a reason to do A rather than B, essentially. Um, but say that, well, really, if we get to sort of a deeper level of, you know, fundamental normative reality or whatever grandiose phrase you like, uh, <laughs> There's really just this kind of favoring relation um, that that Scanlan and, and people like that have talked about, um, and that you know the favoring relation comes in degrees. Some things favor uh, an action more than others, but there's nothing contrastive about it. There's just the, the degree to which a given consideration favors a given action, and so when we talk about reasons, really what we're tracking is the degree to which the relevant considerations are favoring the options. Um, and, and so it's this kind of pull apart the, the reason relation or the relation that's the, if you like, the kind of semantic content of reason descriptions from the really deep, important, normative favoring relation. Um, and to say that the, the, the kind of shallow content of our reason descriptions is explained by or kind of tracks that, that really deep, important, non-contrastive uh, favoring relation. Right. So your view winds up, though, being that um, that that shallow picture won't do, though. Right. I mean, that um, uh, that contrastivism, you don't get the full benefits of a contrastive view if you still think that the contrast stuff, you know, has to do with, you know, weighing the different reasons that you have. That's right. right. Uh, rather than the the. the what I take it is the core of the deep contrastivist view, which is uh, the favoring relation itself That's right. <laughs> is, is contrastive, uh, we might say, all the way down. That's right. Um, uh, so can, can you just spell out a little bit about how, yeah, I, 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 again, as, a, as an interloper in, in, uh, in, in uh, these kinds of topics, um, 
it, it took me, uh, it, it was only with some effort that I think <laughs> I began to get my head around the idea that favor, the favoring relation as such has to be, um, or, or maybe let me put it this way, uh, <laughs> that the favoring relation is, as such could be <laughs> contrastive all the way down. That's totally uh, so could you help, help us spell that out? Yeah, yeah, good. So, so I, I introduced this sort of shallow contrastivist strategy. And then, of course, the way to, to push back against that is to, to argue that this favoring relation itself is contrastive. And so that's, that's what takes up really the bulk of, of the third chapter of the book. Um, and so I end up giving some arguments that, in a way, look like kind of like the arguments I gave uh, in, the, in, in the second chapter, um, when I was pushing for this contrastive semantics for the word reason. Um, so relying on a lot of these rather than kinds of claims, um, these explicitly contrastive claims, but this time talking about favoring uh, instead of talking about, about reasons. Um, and so, you know, one, one kind of case I consider is a little bit of a complicated one, um, but maybe, maybe it's worth going through. Sure. Um, so I, I, this is actually a case that, that um, Jacob Ross sort of used in his, in his doctoral dissertation, uh, and I, I kind of developed that. Um, so imagine you've gotten these three invitations for dinner. So your friend Ara has invited you out for Armenian. Your friend Bert has invited you out for burgers. And your friend Charlie has invited you out for Chinese Okay, so I use the letters, so it'll be kind of clear. The one is invitation A, the other is invitation B, and the third one's invitation C. Okay, and suppose you're, you're imagine the only kind of relevant considerations here are, are your preferences. Um, there's not any kind of special moral reason to go to one place rather than the other. So suppose your preferences are like this. Um, Ara is sort of your favorite person to spend time with. You love spending time with Ara. Bert, you really like, not quite as much as you like Ara, but, you know, he's one of your best friends. And then Charlie just really annoys you. You can't stand being around him. Um, okay. Uh, on the flip side, your food preferences look like this. You love Chinese food. It's your favorite, favorite kind of food. Uh, burgers are, you know, you really like burgers. You're, you'd be totally happy with burgers. You don't like them quite as much as Chinese food, but you like them a lot. And then Armenian food, you can just barely stomach. Um, okay, so your, your, your companion preferences and your food preferences are sort of flipped uh, with respect to these invitations. All right, so now we can ask, um, is the fact that uh, invitation B, the fact that that invitation is for burgers, is that, does that favor choosing invitation B? Um, well, here's what we can say. It does favor choosing invitation B rather than choosing invitation A. After all, you like burgers a lot more than you like Armenian food. But it's not clear that it, I mean, it, it definitely seems to not favor choosing invitation B rather than choosing invitation C, since you prefer Chinese food to burgers. So does it favor it kind of simpliciter? Well, I'm not sure. That's actually a little bit hard to say. Um, you, could do, you could do better with respect to your, your food preferences by choosing a different option. So it's not clear. It really does favor it. Uh, and we can run a similar kind of argument um, with the companion preferences. The fact that invitation B is for dinner with Bert, is that, does that favor choosing invitation B? 
well, it favors choosing invitation B rather than choosing invitation A, since you, you know you greatly prefer spending time with Bert to spending time with Ara. Uh, sorry, I, I, I mixed yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Charlie. Charlie. You don't like Charlie. Oh, that's right, Charlie. <laughs> Uh, poor Charlie. Poor Charlie. Um, but it doesn't favor choosing invitation B rather than choosing invitation A, since you prefer spending time with R to spending time uh, with Bert. And so that's like a kind of, again, a sort of simple way to start to see that, well, you know, we can say pretty easily when one thing favors, when some consideration favors one thing uh, over another, but, um, but not, it, it's a little harder to say whether it favors the thing uh, implicator. And so I walked through various ways uh, for the kind of the shallow contrastivist who, you know, importantly uh, for, the, for this part of the dialectic is a non-contrastivist about favoring um, to try and explain what's going on here. Um, and I think that ultimately none of that, none of that works very well. Um, and so what I conclude is that, you know, this favoring relation itself and not just the kind of reason relation that serves as the, the kind of content of these reason claims is going to be contrastive. Now, we could try and run a similar argument and say, well, maybe these favoring ascriptions are contrastive, but there's this deeper kind of proto-favoring relation, but you can sort of see where that where that's going to go. Sure. Um, all right, so that that's how I try and argue against this shallow contrastivist idea that um, – the reason relation, the content of the ascriptions is contrastive, but not the fundamental normative favoring relation. So that pushes us into the kind of territory, I guess, of uh, the deep contrastivist, that this favoring relation itself really is contrastive. Um, and so, so as you say, I mean, that's um, a little, might be a little hard to make sense of. Um, I think that it's just kind of a new idea. So how, how could that, that be true? And so one way um, that I try and show how to make sense of it is like, well, if we just are talking about favoring and not saying anything about, you know, what favoring is, then maybe it's going to be a little difficult, but actually a lot of people have tried to go further and give a sort of analysis of what, um, of what favoring is, what it is for some consideration to favor some action. Um, and maybe I'll switch back to talking about reasons now, because if we're willing to be deep contrastivists, we don't need to pull apart the reason relation and the uh, favoring relation. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I, I get into the, to the fourth chapter in, of the book, which is in some ways really the heart of the book. That's where I actually kind of put the theory on the table. Um, and so the starting point there is this idea that um, – what it is for some consideration to be a reason that's going to be explained at least partly in terms of, of the promotion of certain kinds of what I call objectives. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a, uh, a desire based theory of reasons, you know, a kind of broadly human theory of reasons, then you're going to say something like this, what it is for, for some consideration to be a reason for you to fi is for that consideration to explain why fying would promote, one of your desires. Um, if you have, you know, a, a value-based view, if you think that, that what's important are, is, is the promotion of values, and you're going to say what it is for some consideration to be a reason for you to fi is for it to, to explain or indicate why fying would promote, you know, some valuable state of affairs or some, or some value 
Um, and so a lot of people have had this idea that, that reasons are going to be intimately connected to the promotion of something like desires or values or, or something along those lines, what I call objectives. And so, you know, I can go through that in a bit more detail uh, if, if you'd like. But, I mean, the, the, the important thing for trying to understand how favoring or how reasons kind of at the fundamental normative level could be contrastive um, if you think about reasons or favoring like this, that it's going to be explained in terms of the promotion of these kinds of objectives, um, then what I think is when we start trying to dig in and see um, exactly how that would go, what the relationship is between reasons and, and promotion of these objectives, then we're going to see that the best way to make sense of that is to understand this promotion uh, basically contrastively. Um, we're going to want to look at not when something, when some action promotes, say, a desire or a valuable state of affairs simpliciter, but instead when it promotes some desire or valuable state of affairs better than the alternatives. Um, and so uh, if you like this kind of analysis of reasons or, or favoring, um, then uh, as long as you agree with me, you know, about my arguments that we should look at comparative favoring um, relations rather than favoring simpliciter, then that might start to help you see how this this um, fundamental normative relation could be contrastive. Right. That, that that's that's very helpful. Um, can, let me just ask. Um, let me ask one question just mm -hmm. just about how you spelt out the view, and 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 this this might be. Um, Selfish of me because it's, it, it it might be only helpful to me <laughs> uh, to hear your answer. But um, uh, given given the analysis that's now uh, on on the table of the sort of fundamentally contrastive nature of reasons by which now we mean all the way down and mm -hmm. the favoring as such is contrastive. Yeah. Um, is this account of reasons, um, is the deep contrastivist account of reasons um, neutral among sort of the the the, the, uh, the garden variety theories of normative ethics? Can you be a deontologist and hold this view? That might be a way. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. it sounds like it's going to be really good. This, this looks like good news to um, uh, varieties of consequentialism mm -hmm. that are on board with the idea that, you know, sort of like... Um, uh, um, uh, Alistair Norcross styles of, uh, <laughs> of utilitarianism that the right. fundamental moral concept is better than and yeah better than and right. worse than those are the fun it looks like it's going to be really happy news for moral theories that think that moral judgments as such uh, all in moral judgments are always going to be scalar or comparative or matters of degree which I, I take it is sort of uh, 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 bad news for any uh, any non uh, any view that's interested in saying th 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 there's right and wrong in in some non scalar sense, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and especially since I put things in terms of um, the promotion of you know valuable outcomes or or, or you know values uh, in whatever right. sense, um, that definitely starts to sound very consequentialist. Um. And so I do, you know, I, I think it would not only be bad, I think it would be bad news for me, actually, if the view wasn't, you know, at least neutral to a large, to a large extent um, among these first order normative theories. Um, 
and so I'd like for it to be. And so one thing I, I do in, in chapter four when I'm laying out this kind of provo- promotion-based analysis of reasons is, uh, is point out that, look, a lot of people don't think that um, all, at least all reasons are going to be promotion-based and they're going to be explained by the promotion of, of certain kinds of things. Um, so, I mean, a, a sort of simple... I guess a sort of obvious uh, candidate for someone who would reject this would be, you know, someone like like Tim Scanlon or like Elizabeth Anderson, who who think that uh, look promotion um, isn't really what it's all about. It's or at least not all the time. It's about um, honoring or respecting certain kinds of things, certain kinds of values. Right. So you know, the value of friendship doesn't primarily you don't primarily get reasons to promote friendship by sort of abandoning your friends and going out and trying to match up people who you think would make, you know, would be good friends. Um, what, what the value of friendship primarily gives you is, is um, reasons to respect or honor that value by say, treating your own, your own friends well. And so, you know, if reasons are not promotion based, but what we might call respect or honor based in that way, you know, about respecting and honoring values, um, then the kind of promote, the kind of argument I give uh, in chapter four, that's based on promotion, looks like it's just not going to get any traction. Right. And so, you know, a, a couple of things to say to that, uh, that, that, that I mentioned in the book. Um, one is, I, I really think, I mean, you know, maybe some people think no reasons at all are, have to do with promotion of certain kinds of things. Um, but but that, that seems like a fairly strong view to me. Um, I think that everyone should admit that at least some reasons are going to have to do with the promotion of certain things. Um, whether you think those are valuable outcomes or, or not, I mean, uh, you know, that, that could be an open question. But the, the kind of obvious example is what people call instrumental reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so reasons you have to take the means to, to your ends. Um, those, at least a lot of those look like they're going to be uh, about promoting that, those ends. Sure. And so as long as we agree that some reasons are, are promotion based, then I think, you know, if my argument goes through, then we at least should be contrastivist about those reasons. Um, and given that contrastivism is a pretty sort of high level, uh, formal account of the, the sort of structure of, of reasons, then um, we might hope that we can give a sort of unified view about what all reasons are like. Um, so that that suggests that we should at least try and, you know, try and fit um even if we think that some reasons aren't going to be promotion based, try and fit those reasons into this contrastive framework. Right. And so one way I try and do that is say, look, even if you think what's important isn't promotion uh, of objectives, but rather honoring or respecting values, say, um, well, what's really going to be important for the kind of view I gave to go through is that um, we get just a sort of ranking um, of, of the alternatives of a certain kind. And so if we think in terms of promotion, we can just rank the alternatives in terms of how well they promote, uh, you know, a given desire or a given, a given value. If we think in terms of honor or respect, it seems like we can still rank them in terms of how well, um, how well they honor or respect the value. And so this might look different for different values. I mean, mm-hmm. so, uh, there, you know, some, some alternatives might be closer to the ideal way of honoring some value or, or something like that, um, or just honor it more than some other alternative or respect it more. 
Um, and, you know, some of these rankings uh, might be relatively trivial. So um, if I promise to do something, if I promise to, uh, to pick you up at the airport, um, and then the alternatives are picking up the airport or staying on my couch playing video games um, or, you know, having some lunch. It could be that all the alternatives that involve breaking the promise um, don't honor it at all. And so we're going to be all just stuck at the very bottom of the ranking. Um, and so the only thing that that gets ranked above the very bottom is actually keeping keeping the promise. And it's not because that promotes, you know, outcomes in which promises are kept or anything like that. It's that it honors the value of, of keeping the promise. I see. And so if we can make that kind of thing work, I mean, and that's, that's a big sort of assumption that we'll be able to get those kinds of rankings, I think. But if we can make that kind of thing work, then it seems like um, there's space at least for a kind of deontologist to accept this sort of view. So I, I should mention, I think that actually... Um, there, there are some, some views, not quite at the sort of first order level, but maybe a kind of, a kind of step down from where, where most of, uh, the work in this book takes place that maybe are actually ruled out, um, by some things I say in the book. Um, and actually it's a pretty popular kind of view. Um, and this is what I, what some people call reasons primitivism. Right. Um, as defended by, you know, Parfit and, and Scanlon recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the idea that, we can't really say anything about um, what it is for some consideration to be a reason. Um, so Scanlon says, what is it to be a reason? It's to count in favor. And what is it to count in favor? It's to give a reason, right? So he, he thinks he can't, in part, in part, it kind of agrees with that um, and on what matters. Right. Um, and so in particular, uh, reasons primitivists are going to be opposed to um, analyzing reasons in terms of either the promotion or the, you know, respect uh, of certain, of, of values. Um, they're not going to, they're going to think reasons kind of come first and, and can't be explained in terms of anything else, basically. Um, so the version of contrastivism that I give uh, actually relies on something being sort of at the bottom that we analyze reasons in terms of whether that's values or, or desires or whatever. Um, and so I think that actually, I mean, there could be a contrastive version of reasons primitivism. Um, you just say, well, to be a reason to do A rather than B is to favor doing A rather than B, and that's really all we can say about it. Um, but that looks un- but that looks a little unpromising, doesn't it? <laughs> it does look a little un- unpromising, and I mean, this it's is- a lot. It's a lot to say that you can't say more about, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, and like, why is it that this is the reason for A rather than B, and not for A rather than C, for example? Right. Um, and I mean, in a way, that's kind of the, that sort of very simple primitivist kind of view is where where I end up at the end of chapter three in the book, and then I raise a big problem for that idea, um, which is that if that's really all we can say, um, then it looks like we're going to get, you know, reasons, vary, the reasons for doing, you know, the reasons for fying just varying with, with the alternatives to fying in just a totally unconstrained way. Um, so, you know, one way to push that is I ask, why would, a, okay, so this is a reason to do A rather than B, not a reason to do A rather than C. Why is that? Why is the reason varied in this way with the shifting of the alternatives? Um, and if you just have this primitivist view, there's nothing really you can say there. Um, and then I think you're going to be in a bad spot 
because it's going to make what I call in the book cross-context deliberation just impossible. Because right. um, every time an, a, you know, an alternative becomes irrelevant or a new alternative is introduced, the reasons might just shift in some totally unpredictable way. Um, and you have to just start all over in your deliberation. Um, so that just can't, that seems like it just couldn't really be right to me. And so a big part of the task of chapter four is trying to give a version of contrastivism that, you know, is independently motivated, but which can solve that, that problem. Right. So that's, that's all very helpful. Um, can we uh, sort of pick up on the, um, one of the, uh, one of the topics that, that gets raised later in the book that um, we were we were just brushing up against, which is um, concerns about intransitivity. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, again, one of the one of the virtues, uh, one of the many virtues of of the book is, uh, as I started by saying, is that you know you're you're constantly looking to make the task hard, um, and so um, uh, you know some. Um, Recent writers have thought that um, uh, there are good reasons to embrace uh, intransitivity about normal about normative matters as such, and um, contrastivist uh, some grade of contrastivism about normative reasons have looked to some of these writers like uh, it's it's a nice complement to uh, uh, their commitment to uh, intransitivity uh, moral intransitivity particularly, um, and what you say is. Well, not all is well if you've got to introduce intransitivity uh, into the account. Maybe it's unavoidable, but we have to be very careful about where we put, you know, how we talk about intransitivity or where we where we locate it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the concerns with intransitivity uh, uh, regarding uh, contrastivism, maybe in the broader sense, and then particularly with with the variety that you favor? Yeah. So, you know, I was just mentioning um, one reason for going with the kind of contrastive view I do where we analyze reasons um, in terms of some kind of underlying property or state or whatever, you know, desires or values or something um, is because it lets us give more kind of more structure to the to the view. Um, and, and it it puts constraints on the way that reasons can vary as the alternatives shift around. Um and so one of the big sort of constraints I think we should try and, and, and retain or capture is what I kind of what I call it, it's a kind of it looks like a kind of transitivity constraint. So if we have some consideration that is a, a reason to do A rather than B and that same consideration is a reason to do B rather than C, then it seems like we probably want that that consideration to be a reason to do A rather than C. And so, you know, that's very abstract. I think an example I give in the book is, um, you know, suppose uh, I'm trying to get in shape, then that, that might be a reason for me to, uh, to let's see, how did it go? To uh, bike, sorry, to run to the, to the cafe for my daily milkshake rather than bike there. And it's a reason to bike there rather than drive there. And so if we can't say anything at all about how reasons vary as the alternatives shift, if that just happens in some totally unsystematic way, then it seems like the following should be a live question uh, that we just have to kind of evaluate on its own terms. Is the fact that I'm trying to get in shape a reason to run to the cafe rather than drive there? Now, we know it's a reason to run rather than bike and a reason to bike rather than drive, but is it a reason to run rather than, than drive? 
Right. Um, and I think that shouldn't be an open question. Um, I think yeah, that it seems obvious <laughs> it should be. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of uh, constraint that we want to capture. And that looks like a sort of transitivity. Um, okay, so I rule that out in chapter four. The view I give ends up ruling that out. And so, and then when I start chapter five, I, you know, I started kind of, as you, as you said, I mean, from a, from a perspective of someone who likes intransitivity, you know, Stuart Rachels or Larry Temkin or someone, um, contrastivism might look really good. It's like, look, we've been saying for years that, uh, some values, some moral factors, some normative considerations are essentially comparative. Um, and we think that's sort of where intransitivity comes from, or at least one place where, where intransitivity uh, in the normative domain comes from. And so I'm developing this contrasted view, and maybe they're getting excited. Uh, and then comes chapter four, and I just rule out this kind of intransitivity, and so they might be disappointed. Um, and it's not just that I'm scared of disappointing people. I mean, that's true. But... Uh, uh, you know, if, if if we think these arguments that Temkin and other people have given are at least somewhat compelling, um, then a view that rules out intransitivity just by definition, um, you know, that that's a kind of strike against that view, I think. Um, sure. And so the the sort of challenge I start with in chapter five is, uh, can we avoid that? Can we avoid disappointing Larry Temkin? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not how I frame it exactly, but that, that's really, you know, uh, that's what, that's what it's about. Um, and so, yeah. So as you said, I, I, I start out and say, well, actually I think, um, maybe we can if we want to. <laughs> um, and so I, I distinguish between two sorts of, of intransitivity. So first is the kind that I, I ruled out in chapter four, which is, something being a reason for A rather than B and for B rather than C, but not being a reason for A rather than C. So that's what I, I call uh, the intransitivity of reasons. And then I, I distinguish that from, from the kind of thing that uh, I take people like Temkin and, and Rachel's to be talking about, um, which I call the intransitivity of more reason than. So they talk mainly about better than, but uh, you know I think we can translate that kind of naturally and to talk about more reason than so that that's what I'm going to that's what I'm going to do. Um, and so they give these examples like, you know, maybe like perfect repugnant conclusion where we have this one outcome a with 10 billion people with these unbelievably awesome lives. And then we go to outcome B that has, you know, 10 times that many people or 100 times that many people with slightly lower levels of well-being. And we just sort of keep marching down to outcome Z. And it has this enormous, you know, population, just this huge number of people, all with lives barely worth living. And so if you think, if you're given the choice between, you know, which of these outcomes to realize, maybe you have more reason to choose B than to choose A, since uh, it has so many more people and their lives are still so good, just only barely uh, less good than they are in, in A. And by similar reasoning, you have more reason to choose C than to choose B and so on. And you get down the chain and then you get to outcome Z and you say, well, there's more reason to choose Z than to choose Y by just the exact same kind of reasoning we've been going through all along. Mm -hmm. And so if we apply the transit, if we say that that more reason than has to be transitive, so if there's more reason for A than for B and more reason for B than for C, there has to be more reason for A than for C. Then we get this, what Parfit calls the repugnant conclusion, um, which is that 
you know, if given this choice, we have more reason to choose this outcome with a just, you know, zillions and billions of people with lives barely worth living. We have more reason to choose that than the outcome with, you know, a mere 10 billion people with the best lives you can imagine. In part, it thinks that that's repugnant. Um, and one way out of that is to deny this transitivity of more reason than assumption. So um, that's the kind of view that, that Temkin and others have been pushing. We should deny the transitivity of more reason than. But note that that the, that thing that more reason than might be intransitive is different than saying that uh, reasons might be intransitive in the sense that I ruled out. Um, so, you know, in principle, it should or it might be uh, possible to retain the kind of transitivity of reasons that that I that I have in chapter four while adopting the intransitivity of more reason than. Um, and so, you know, I talk about how we might do that. It, it, it still sort of looks like a kind of unstable view in some ways. Mm-hmm. So by the transitivity of reasons, this 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 claim I'm committed to any reason for A, sorry, any reason for A rather than B and for B rather than C has to be a reason for A rather than C. So the reasons are all going to kind of, you know, go through. Um, and so it might be puzzling how any reason for A rather than B and for B rather than C has to be a reason for A rather than C, how we could have that, but still have there being, you know, more reason for A than for B and more reason for B than for C, but not more reason for C than for A. Um, did I get that backwards? Yeah, you, you you meant to say more reason for A rather than C. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay, so got that kind of backwards, but hopefully the, the idea is kind of clear. Um, yeah. And so, you know, how could that how could that happen? And so then uh, I observed that, um, well, you know, this this talking about more reason than that, that's a claim about the weight of the reasons. Um, and so, you know, contrastivism as such doesn't say anything about the weight of reasons. It's just a claim about when some consideration is a reason for one thing rather than another. The question of weight is just a separate question. Um, and the, the kind of total weight of the reasons to do A rather than C is going to depend on more than just sort of the number of reasons there are to do A rather than C, just because some of those reasons are going to be very weighty and some of them might be not very weighty at all. And so if we can vary that, if we can let the weight vary um, with the contrast, then, um, then we can get this sort of intransitivity of more reason than without committing ourselves to the intransitivity of reasons, as I call it. Um, and so, and I think, the, the, you know, even if you like the kind of Temkin-style argument for the intransitivity of more reason than, there's just no reason at all to adopt the intransitivity of reasons. Um, so let's see the the kinds of cases like the repugnant conclusion case no one should deny that there is a reason to choose outcome z rather than choose outcome a after all there's more total utility say in outcome z than in outcome a that looks like a reason to choose z rather than a it's just that we don't think that it's sort of enough to make it the case that we have more reason you know we have most reason to choose outcome z rather than a so, and I take it that it's also um, part of the story that you're uh, you're not claiming that uh, the deep con- um, the, the deep contrastivist view of reasons requires one 
to adopt intransitivity, even about the the more reason than uh, relation. It's just available that's, to the deep. That's right. Yeah. So as I put it, I mean, I think that the, we need a certain assumption to get the intransitivity of more reason than. And this assumption is that um, the kind of uh, the weight of the reasons or as I, you know, I kind of break it down and say the, the importance of the, the objectives that provide the reasons might shift with the contrast. So right. when you're contrasting, you know, um, A and B, it could be that that total utility is is very important, um, while average utility is less important. But when you're comparing A and Z, they might flip so that average utility all of a sudden is very important and total utility is, is less important. And so if you let that happen, you can... You know, if you have that kind of assumption, then you can get the intransitivity of more reason than. But that's an additional assumption that you, you know you just don't really need to be a contrastivist. Right. This. right. Well, excellent. Um, so, Justin, uh, we're we're at the end of our time, but we we, we didn't get to talk about um, uh, the last chapter of the book, which is um, uh, uh, some really interesting stuff about um, contrastivism. Um, uh, about other kinds of normative <laughs> matters, uh, including particularly belief and intention, uh, where you think that um, we've got good reasons uh, uh, to adopt a contrastivist view uh, about these matters. And um, the, the final chapter, folks, of the book is, is about withholding belief and withholding intention. Uh, um, uh, can you can you tell us something very quick? Uh, I, I know it's. <laughs> by the way, it's a nice. It's a short book, but we we spent uh, we spent um, uh, over an hour talking about it and haven't covered it all. So, <laughs> folks, that's how that's how much philosophy is packed into these pages. Uh, do you have a do you have do you have a short thing to tell us a, a, about the final chapter? Uh, yeah, I could just say very quickly. I mean, I think that uh, so the final chapter, as you said, takes up this question of when it's rational to withhold belief or when it's rational to withhold intention. And this is, a, you know, an important topic that I think hasn't really been explored uh, quite enough. Um, and so I think that some views that look really plausible when you just apply them to uh, when it's rational to believe something. Uh, start to look less plausible when you apply them to um, when it's rational to withhold belief. Um, and so I try and show how we can maintain the, the uh, nice, simple, attractive view um, or something like it if we just kind of make it into a contrastive view about when it's rational to, to believe and when it's rational to withhold belief. And then I generalize that to uh, the, case of, the case of intention. And so, as you say, I mean, the, the first five chapters of the book are primarily about reasons for action. Um, and uh, so one, one sort of attraction of the view I end up with in, in chapter six is it's really just a, a straightforward generalization of, of the, the views about reasons for action that I give to the case of reasons for attitudes. Um, and so we get this nicely unified picture of, uh, of, of reasons. Well, Justin, that's, that sounds like a good place uh, to wrap up. Um, thank you for your time today. Oh, oh, thanks so much. I enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, on New Books in Philosophy. Again, we've been discussing uh, a book titled Contrastive Reasons, and the author is Justin Snedeker, and the book is published by Oxford. Thank you for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.